there. You're listening to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this is a podcast about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be talking about cults versus communes, xenophobia, sexual liberation, immigration fraud, religious freedom, and maybe also putting beavers into blenders in order to use the resulting goo to taint the water supply. As you do. Yes. Yes, we are discussing Wild Wild Country, Netflix's docuseries about how the followers of the Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh attempted to build their utopian society in where else? Wasco County, Oregon in the 1980s, only to clash with the locals in an escalating and increasingly disturbing battle. So given the subject matter, it would make sense for us to spend the second half of this episode recommending some other movies and shows about cults. You know, if, and we can debate this, the Rajneesh movement was indeed a cult or is, it's ongoing. Uh, but it turns out we've actually already done an episode on cults. Uh, you can find it uh, in our archives. It's SVU number 90, in which we review the 2014 film Faults. Uh, so instead, since Wild Wild Country was directed by two brothers, Chapman and McLean Way, and executive produced by two more pairs of brothers, three sets of brothers, uh, Jay and Mark Duplass and Dan and Josh Brown, uh, we thought we would talk about work from the surprising abundance of brother filmmaking teams out there. Uh, and all of these titles will, of course, be available for rental or stream. But first, let's venture into Wild Wild Country. Everybody felt they were there at the beginning of the great experiment. Like we were the chosen people. <laughs> I'm here in one of the largest ranches in the Northwest. Today, it's Rajneesh Purim, because a prominent Indian guru and his followers bought it. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrust Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. They're run by satanic power. There is talk of vigilantes who may seek revenge on the Rajneeshis. So the way things work here at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is that you, the listener, tell us what you'd like us to review next. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or shows and let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Last time your choices were Tulip Fever, which is on Netflix, the long-delayed period drama that turned out to be the Weinstein Company's swan song, and the Netflix original Wild Wild Country, and the Chinese action hit and Oscar submission Wolf Warrior 2 on Hulu. I'll be honest, Matt, that's what I was rooting for. Did yeah. not stand a chance. No, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, Wild Wild Country was a wild, wild winner. Oh, Wow. <laughs> It's late when we're recording this. I get to say whatever I want. No, I know. I know. It's just usually I'm the one saying horrible things. Go ahead. Buckle in. Don't steal my gimmick is what I'm saying. Go ahead. Uh, Anyway, it took nearly half of the vote. And I will say, 
I'm glad because this series gives you a whole lot to talk about. Mm. Wild Wild Country, which was directed, as I mentioned, by Chapman and McLean Way, whose past film was the documentary The Battered Bastards of Baseball, is on a basic level a six-part documentary series about what happened when the Rajneesh movement, uh, a kind of new-agey spiritualist movement based around the teachings of a guru named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, uh, what happened to them after the guru and his followers, many of whom were Westerners, picked up and moved from India to the U.S. in the 80s to start their dream community on a ranch in northern Oregon. But it is about so much more than that. It is about who has ownership of a place and how people feel about the rights to, say, religious freedom and bearing arms when they're being applied to others, not in their community. Uh, it's about spiritual idealism versus the reality of, say, ferocious competing for and protecting power. And it is, uh, with a scope that actually sometimes made me think of Ezra Edelman's OJ Made in America, about the United States. The idea of our country as a refuge versus the reality. Uh, also, it's about poisoning salad bars in an attempt to win elections. As you do. And beaver goo, as you and mentioned earlier. beaver goo, which is my favorite small random <laughs> bit of this sprawling series. Fair. Uh, Matt, I wanted to start with something I mentioned before. Uh, that does feel like a kind of central question to this documentary, which really does play on your sympathies and keep you wavering back and forth at different times mm. about who seems reasonable until maybe no one seems reasonable. Yeah. Uh, would you describe the Rajneesh movement, Rajneesh movement as a cult? Or also, did your feelings change in that regard over the course of the series? Um, I think I would probably call them a cult. I think that you're correct when you say, you know, your, your feelings sort of waver and waffle. You, you learn things uh, about the different characters in the film, and sometimes they sound eminently reasonable, and other times they sound absolutely crazy and or just horrifying or violent or terrifying. So you might have a scene where someone talks about their love and devotion for the Bhagwan or Osho or, and they'll talk about how deeply it, and they'll be crying and, and it, you know, and it's hard not to be moved when someone's talking about their faith and their belief system and what it's meant to them. And, and then a few scenes later, they might talk about, Oh, we were going to murder someone because <laughs> we were told to, um, we were going to shove a needle in someone's butt and then go on the, go on the lamb. And yeah, it, it definitely, it, it has the advantage of being, you know, six hours, full hours, and having enough time to really uh, uh, kind of take you on a roller coaster ride of allegiances where you're not quite sure who is the good guy, who is the bad guy here. Ultimately, to be honest with you, I, I ended up feeling just about everyone in this show was the bad guy. Yes. There's not a lot of sympathetic figures when you get to the end. Right. I mean, at times, some people do seem sympathetic or you certainly empathize with them because they're, you know, these are lost. A lot of the cult, the people in the cult or the group, if you don't believe it's a cult, they're they're lost souls. They're looking for something in their life. They found something here. And now maybe it led them to do some very questionable things, but it came out of a very hum human and relatable need that's very understandable. So there are times where you might empathize, but almost everyone that has like a major role comes off pretty badly at least once, if not multiple times over the course of the film. Yeah, I series. love the way in which it starts off and I'm like, oh, 
this xenophobic town really like are you know they hate outsiders and they're saying all of these barely you know euphemistic things about right uh, people newcomers coming into their town and yes. newcomers who are not all white and newcomers who are not christian and right uh and then the cult does something and you're like wait that's horrible <laughs> right if this if these people were my neighbors Yes. I'd be freaking out too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which I enjoyed so much the ways in which it kept you kind of like going back and forth. Um, uh, I will say, I, I think that the interviews were, I mean, this, this series benefits hugely from having so much archival footage from the yes. time. Like it, I, I think the, I was reading an interview with the way brothers and they were saying that when they were making that last documentary, they had never heard of this. And I had never heard of this. Had Me you? neither. Nope. Um, that they had run into an, an archivist who was like, what are you doing next? I happen to have all of this footage. And it was like 300 hours of footage. Um, and it shows of, in the finished product because there's so much archival footage. Right. And it really allows you a glimpse of that era, yes. not just people talking about it, which yes. I think gives the interviews an extra edge because so many of these people are not necessarily purely trustworthy interviews absolutely yeah especially of course like the star of of the series ma ananchila who is a really really interesting interview she is indeed in character yes and i feel like the ways in which you're allowed to see her at the moment and then see how she tells the story are kind of like the core of this series right because it's not that she necessarily dissembles but she has a particular take on the story and her role in it. And I think being able to see her at the time and then see how she kind of tries to skew it is really something. She has an agenda. Yes. Well, I mean, that's another fascinating thing about it is it is almost like a Rashomon story because there are these key accounts of what's happening and they almost all contradict. You know, the government has a story the 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 members of the the group have a story but then other members of the group a different faction within the group will have a different story and the townspeople will have a different story and they're describing events the same events but from completely different perspectives and even with the archival footage we are sort of left to go well who's telling the truth here who seems believable and sometimes it's hard sometimes it seems like okay this person really seems like they're lying or they're they're their vi- their version of events is distorted by their perspective, at least. Then there are other times where you're like, I have no idea what really happened here, even with the archival footage. And I think that's – it's not only fun and it makes it an interesting show to watch. I think it speaks to one of the themes of this show, which is about belief and about the power of belief and and how you can sort of convince yourself of almost anything if you are desperate enough, if you are hard up enough, or if you are just in a place where – it makes it easier or it improves your life to believe. And so, so much of the, you know, the, the Bhagwan's uh, following is, is, is people lost souls. You know, I mean, there's a part where they're literally just recruiting homeless people from around the country. That, that part was incredible. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's incredibly heartbreaking at times too, because, sure. you know, they're bringing um, people there who have, you know, they're just at the absolute bottom and here they're offering them a second chance seemingly noble and then of course we learn that there They're is a drugging them yes well i was going to say that they they need them th- for it's multiple agenda. things yes, they have an agenda right they need them for the votes that be, so that they can take over this town <laughs> but and and then when it doesn't work out they they literally kick them to the curb yes. and it's just i mean that is absolutely heartbreaking but it does speak to how much of the show is about again like the the power of belief and the power of buying in to something and so the fact that there are these different 
accounts, different versions of events, I think really strengthens that side of it. Yeah. Did you ever at a point wonder if that what could have happened if the town and the commune slash cult did not immediately basically start butting heads? What do you mean? Well, because, I mean, one of the things about Antelope, which is the town, yes. and it's briefly renamed uh, when they take over the commune, the cult takes over the town, is that uh, Antelope, the people of Antelope would rather basically vote their town out of existence, which Municipal they suicide, to do. I think Municipal someone suicide. describes it as. They would rather wish the town out of existence than surrender it or, like, let it change. Correct. Which is one of the other, like, fascinating and sad things about this, is that there's no question that, like... These outsiders, these like hippy dippy outsiders could ever be allowed in the community. Right. I mean, did you ever think about like what? There was a point in the beginning where I was like, what would a hybrid community be like? This it dying would be town. In, it would it be is a dying town, yes. right? It's 40 people in this right. town. And they like it that way. They like it that way. They're, like the ending is so sad yes. when they're celebrating taking the town back and you're like, right. your cafe, your one cafe is closed. Yes. Like you, you have almost no one living here yes. and they're all retirees. It's a very hollow victory. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I felt like. It, it it is odd because like as you said when we get to this when they when they first arrive and they start building this community it's like they don't give them a chance and they really do seem like the worst stereotype of sort of like a small town xenophobic hick but then the commune literally justifies every one of their preconceived notions by doing horrible things yeah. stocking up on they they think they say at one point they had a million rounds of ammunition <laughs> They literally poisoned people. They plotted murders. I mean, who wouldn't want that kind of a person out of their community? Something I really enjoyed about the series, especially in those early episodes, is that it is like it's almost like this parable about the left's worst image of the right and the right's worst image of the left. Yes. Like you have on one side this small town so inured to what they have and resistant to change totally. that they would actually rather destroy everything right. than accept new people. And then the other side, you have a free love cult, <laughs> like this like blithely multiracial free love cults living in communes out in the woods. Right. And, and the, their religion, so much as there is one, is literally like have sex all the time. Yes. Pleasure principle to the max. Right. You don't believe in marriage. Right. Yes. Marriage is meaningless. Right. And, and yes, and it's, and it, you know, but, and it's also like highly commoditized, you know, there's a lot of like spending and, and, uh, consumption, uh, and, and you're believing in a, a you know, quote unquote, from, from an, from a, a Christian's perspective, a false God. It's, you really, you're right. absolutely right. It is, it is, it is in a way an interesting parallel to a, a, a modern society where they're seemingly, we've lost any sense of a middle, middle ground or a, a possibility of compromise and the, the, the extremes of left and right have become so polarized and so antagonistic they're and so like distrustful. to each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's an interesting um, parallel to that. And I, I, you know, I have to admit there were times where with Sheila, where she felt a little bit Trumpian to me as a leader, her, her like sort of trolling, very aggressive media presence. She loves the media. Yeah. She distrusts the media. She is incredibly compelling as a figure of the media. Um, she, she likes to fight. She likes to fight. She likes to threaten. Mm-hmm. She likes to bully and use very foul language, har- say horrible things. <laughs> she ref- she will never back down from a fight. Yep. I mean, you're she, right. You're totally right. I mean, there were several times in the show where I was like, she 
there is there's absolutely sort of a Trumpian aspect to her leadership qualities. And then at the same time, um, one of the townsfolk, the the one who is, I think, is he the son of the founder of Nike? He's the son of the founder of Nike. It was another incredible, just like left field <laughs> twist of the show. It's like, my dad, he was like, in the, and then I just started Nike with Phil Knight. It's like, I, what? And then, so, which obviously helped fund the town side of yes. the fight. And he says as well, I liked the fight. He almost, he loved, yeah, I end, like fighting. He, he almost is like nostalgic for fighting this Absolutely. cult. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think that the fact that there was never any possibility of a conversation really, mm-hmm. you know, I think is one of the, another thing that feel, real, feels like one of the basic motivating kind of like driving factors mm-hmm. of this in ways that I, I thought were really, really interesting. Can I talk about one thing that I, I, that frustrated me a little bit about the show? Yes, please. I, the interviews we get are fantastic. I, I did want more interviews specifically with sort of like the rank and file members of the commune. Yeah. You know, because the people, all of the people in the commune that we have as like sort of on-screen characters in the present talking about what happened, they're almost all in the like upper echelon. They're powerful. They're yeah. the powerful members. And, and, you know, Sheila and her sort of lieutenant and then another, the lawyer who was sort of one of the key members of the legal team. And they're all great. And I'm glad that they got all of them. But there aren't like, you know, just the average person who heard about the Bhagwan and moved, left their life and moved to Oregon and started farming and having free love. Like, I wanted some of those stories because I felt like I didn't. That was like the main thing that I didn't quite get is like, why would someone leave everything for this guy? And why would you stay when all of these mad things are happening? What do you think when these things are happening? What do you think after they happen? How do you go back to your normal life? How do you proceed with your life after the group collapses? All those questions I felt like was the big sort of hole in the documentary series. Yeah, I would agree. And I was in that same interview I was reading with the Way Brothers. They mentioned that one of the things they had to cut was what was like basically a day in the life of the – uh, at the Rajneesh commune, which is something that I think you do feel like, you know, you mentioned as much as they have any beliefs. And I don't really have a good sense of what the Rajneesh believe. No, that's, you know, that's sort of part and parcel yeah, of what I'm saying. Like, I'm, yeah, I agree. I, I think that like one of the things that is missing is the basic, like, what, what did it mean to yes. join this movement, to really join it in this way? Right. And I feel like, uh, in part, that is owed to the fact that Rajneesh himself is this absence speak. Yes, because absolutely. he goes into silence at the yeah. start. But but in a way, I appreciated that because, uh, you know, the fact that he is this charismatic figure who maybe doesn't say that much seems also to explain everything, you know, uh, that, that he is just a charismatic figure. Um, I didn't I didn't miss interviews with him. I didn't mind that he was this kind of like bright hole in the middle Mm -hmm. but i did want more from the actual yes yeah like what are they getting spiritually out of it because even the 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 members of the group that we see they sort of talk about him and and you know in glowing terms as this incredibly you know i don't know this just this light in their lives but it's what did he say to them yeah it seems very general you know one or two we hear one or two sort of like parables he told them but they don't seem like the kind of thing that you would like pack up your life leave everything drop out of society to to, to, to be a part of. Right. And I recognize that the people that did do this, a lot of them were you hoping know, to do that anyway. <laughs> yes. That they were looking for an excuse uh, to do that. But I just, I don't know. I, I feel like in a way, even though it is a very well balanced series, I, I feel like that's the one area where it's not 
balanced is that it's hard sometimes to sort of go along with the the members of this group who aren't necessarily malicious because I don't really all all we're seeing is sort of the the, the darker side at times and I'm not getting a lot of the the why would you stay what are what spiritual nourishment are you getting I wanted to sort of understand that better yeah I I, I definitely agree and I, you know it's in that discussion of like, is this a commune? Is this a cult? Um, one of the things that is, I think, like worth remarking on is that of these three interviewees that we get, and then there's like a fourth, we get that woman who is like, uh, I think a PR person. But yeah, we like don't get a head a of PR. Yeah. But, uh, of these three main, main interviewees from, from the Rajneesh movement, two of them are still pretty devoted. And I would include Anand Sheila, Ma Anand Sheila in that. She is still devoted to him, not the movement yes. itself. But considering that he throws her under the bus. 100%. That she doesn't say anything bad about him. Still. Even I, mean, these, she I think she does a little is, bit. But at the end of the film, she is basically talks to his believers, his yes. followers now, and says, you've screwed everything up. You've right. gotten away from, the, from what the Bhagwan wanted. Exactly. Like, she is more... She can't bring herself to to really direct a lot of blame at him, but she does That's at fair, his followers. Yes. yes. Um, it's only like Jane Stork, who is uh, Ma Shanti B, I think is her name, who is the one who comes the closest to describing it. I think she says something like it's like a dream that she woke up from or something yeah. like that. But that like – and even then, it's not really the way that people talk about cults, right? Mm-hmm. That In which they're like, I was brainwashed. I was this. It seems more like it was this impossible dream everyone was living in. You right. know? There's a lot of weird wistfulness, in, especially in the part of the lawyer. Like total oh, like, heartbroken wistfulness for yes. this like, time where it was like everything was wonderful for a while. Like he really does feel like it was a utopia. Absolutely. I mean, his story is, is, is tragic. I mean, from his perspective. I mean, and he does seem to be the one guy who I mean, there, he's not really accused of anything in, in the film, in the series. There's not a lot that we see, I mean, other than defending these men and women who, to our perspective, seem pretty indefensible in what they were doing yes. and sort of turning a blind eye to these actions that they, they seem pretty credible, a lot of the charges. He doesn't seem to be involved in committing anything. So, again, you know, his story is kind of tragic, the end of it, that it all falls apart and, and he has to go back to – you know, not being uh, not being a part of this group and not being powerful in the group too. I think that's a part of it. Is that they, that um, to go from? Uh, although I guess he his his day to day life, he was like a successful lawyer, and he left all of that. But I guess he found uh, something more important than uh, financial success. Yeah, having a lot of sex. I guess it having would be. a lot of sex, and I guess finding ful- like spiritual fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment, and meaning. Which I, you know, it seems like this. Traces of this movement still exist. And like, in fact, you know, uh, I noticed you were wearing red when you came in here today. Absolutely. All red. You know, I mean, it it looks nice, but I I was going to say something. But after this podcast, we're going to do an hour's worth of silent (laughs) dancing, by the way. I just want you to be prepared. Great. I'll Uh, start the bonfire in the back. Yeah. I do want to give a shout out, by the way, to maybe my favorite character in, in who appears on screen. John Silvertooth. He is the guy in the overalls. <laughs> he's great. He is. He's actually like maybe the most balanced perspective of he's a townsperson. Yes. But it's not like a townsperson who is like these people. He's mostly like, this is all ridiculous. He's pretty clear eyed about the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. And I enjoyed his like roundup in the end where he notes that a, a kind of like very uh, rigorous Christian camp has moved in. Yes. That he's like, 
kind of points out sideways that it's not that far off in right. terms of like what uh you know except that now there's like no sex absolutely not right like, they've gone from free love to zero love but yeah he uh i just found him such a charming interview yes. especially as other various other characters or subjects i guess interview subjects reveal themselves sometimes in a very kind of sideways fashion to be to have done wild things people who seem very sensible see reveal themselves to have been involved in or just committed themselves to doing outrageous things yeah, then i bought a ton of guns yes, I know. and what would, you had to do and i would rip up the receipt and throw it out the window and laugh and laugh <laughs> and then drive to the next gun store <laughs> that story is so amazing yeah um before we wrap it up the one sort of big question i wanted to ask you in terms of like plot or story details because we don't know i wanted your opinion on you know so much of the sort of second half of it is did uh, Osho, did the Bhagwan, was he the one manipulating everything? Did he tell Sheila to poison the water supply, the beaver goo? Was he the one doing it or was Sheila – like you know, they talk about how she would go meet with him every single night. But on the other hand, we also know he never spoke uh, at least publicly for all that time. And so there's a question of like how with it is he and how much of this is he controlling or is Sheila really doing everything? Yeah. I – I mean, there's no way to know, but I had the feeling that it was her initiative that because she was essentially preserving this prime place of power and, and kind of, I think in her perspective, defending territory. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I mean, like clearly the Bhagwan really wanted other people to do things for him. Yeah. And I think as much as he is responsible, he is responsible for cultivating a, a whole atmosphere in which he picked favorites and then kind of ask them to do things, broad things, and they had to figure out how to do them. Right. Uh, and, you know, when you have a lot of people devoted to you, it creates a kind of atmosphere in which you're in you're in the light of someone's gaze and favor for a while, and then maybe you're not. Mm. And that that can motivate people to do some wild things. Wild, wild things? Yeah. What about you? Did you have a... Yeah, that was basically how I, I, I felt about it, too. But I thought that was just one of the more interesting things. But again, we, we get so little of him, and it's hard to really get a beat on him as a person and as a leader. And, uh, you know, the fact that after she splits splits town in a jet, he he finally comes out in front of everyone and says, I didn't know about any of this. And I didn't... Yeah. They stole all my money. And, this, and, you know, those sort of blanket denials don't really hold a lot of they water. They do. And also... The fact that he, this like, this like wise person espousing free love, one of the first things he does is basically shame her by saying, I didn't have sex with right. that woman. Yeah. Is a real, like, uh, makes you really doubt any of his sincerity. Not to, cool, Bhagwan. Yeah, exactly. Not to, cool. To any of these supposed principles. Right. Yes. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a really, I think, a very engaging. Uh, it's a it's a good watch. Twisty watch. Yes. Yeah. I, I enjoyed watching the whole thing. It was not hard to sit through. I mean, there it's, I mean, there's six hours and some of they're all over an hour, and the last one is like an hour and ten or an hour and twelve. So they're they're it's not like it's short, even though it's only six episodes. But I, I felt like it was worth it. Yeah, and it's well. We didn't even talk about the filmmaking all that much, but I think it's very it's well constructed, well edited, and it that the, they get very good interviews from people. Very and, good interviews. And I think that like that. Oh, we didn't mention my one big my other big complaint: the what? font. Oh, you hated the fonts. I couldn't read it the fonts. It was barely readable. It's very hard, especially in the first episode when they're establishing all these locations, all these people, all their names, and they have these very unusual commune names. 
I, I thought the scripty writing, I'm, I was pausing it. I was yes. rewinding. I still couldn't read it. And I eventually just gave up. And I said, I'm just going to listen to what people are saying and follow along that way. Bad fonts. Bad fonts. I, I like the music, though. The music so is saying, great. Good music, bad fonts. Yes. That is our final verdict yes. on Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now we're going to talk about brother filmmakers. I would love to do like sibling filmmakers larger, but there are sadly very few like sister or brother sister uh, teams out there. I, I don't can't know think of any brothers. brother sister. And teams. there are only a few sisters. A couple sisters I can think of off the top like of my the head. Soska sisters, yes, the Wachowskis. Yes. yes. There's a, apparently a French filmmakers, Delphine and Muriel Coulin. Who I've not seen, I don't, I've not seen I don't their work. That's, I think maybe that's all I could come up with. Yeah, brother. I, I can't think of a single brother sister team. Yeah. That is really interesting. But there are a ton of brothers. A ton of brothers. Like it really, the movie business in some ways like starts the Lumiere brothers, the Warner know, like, brothers, and the Warner brothers. I know yeah. the Shaw brothers, the Shaw brothers. It really the Weinstein brothers. Oh. <laughs> there's a really must like, we? There's you know there's a whole arc of brothers is what we're what <laughs> I'm saying. A pretty dark arc, a dark arc of of, of brothers, and yeah. this is not even like. Then we get into like all of the many teams, the Coens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are twins, the Polish brothers. Um, yeah, there. It's just it is. It's fascinating that there are so many, given that there aren't really that many like directing teams or, uh, you know, like that, that there are this many right. related ones. Well, it's been something that I'm, I, for a long time, the Directors Guild sort of frowned upon any kind of directing team. I mean, the, the Coen brothers, of course, very famous directing team. They really made everything together. But for a long time, Joel was the credited director. Right. Even though they were really making them, directing them together, and I th- it, think it was mostly because it was such a pain in the in the butt to get the directors' guild to just give them both credit. Yeah, which uh, it, I I feel like you, uh, that's true for a lot of these teams where like one person gets credited, but clearly two people work on these things mm-hmm. or more than two people. Mm-hmm. Um, but to run down a few others uh, before we get to our picks, the Dardan brothers, yep, the Farrelly brothers, yep, the brothers Quay. The Hughes brothers, the Pang brothers, mm. uh, a lot the, of good, a lot of good filmmakers. Yeah, the Duffer brothers, of yep. course, of Netflix's. Speaking own of Stranger Netflix, Things. yeah, Netflix the loves a brother. Yeah, we I, just talked about them. We could, I was thinking about that. That uh, they've made some good movies. They would be a good pick. But we just talked about Good Time. Russo brothers, Zellner brothers, Strauss brothers. You know what they directed? Strauss Brothers, no. Aliens versus Predator, oh. Requiem, Oof. also Skyline. I don't feel bad about knowing that one. <laughs> I don't know. Sid and Marty Croft, <laughs> right? Uh, Andrew and John Irwin—they do a lot of faith-based films. Okay, yeah. So that's just some of the Ra- the Ramsey Brothers. So I've never seen their work, but they apparently do a lot of Hindi horror films. Have done. Um, that's just some of them. There are a lot of brother teams out there. Uh, and I think we've talked about some, quite a few of their, of their work. 
Um, I don't have any generalizations about them. This is work that covers a lot of territory. Yeah. But it's just an interesting phenomenon. It that is. It's uh, got kind of through film history. Yes. Uh, including some kind of of the greatest kind of films of various genres, mm-hmm. which I think one of uh, one of yours is like an, in the documentary world is, a, a, is yeah. a classic. I have a comedy and a documentary. Yeah. All right. Spans all genres. You want me to go first? Why don't you go first? All right. So there are, as you just mentioned, there are some great filmmaking brother teams, but only one that is so great. It consists of three people, one of whom is not technically a brother. I think mathematically that makes them the best sibling directing team ever. And I'm talking about David and Jerry Zucker and their friend Jim Abrams, best known for directing Airplane and Top Secret and creating Police Squad, which was the TV show version of The Naked Gun before it became The Naked Gun, which was directed just by David Zucker, although Abrams and Jerry Zucker also worked on them. He was the sole director of that one. So Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker collaborated on many projects. They only directed three movies as a trio, Airplane and Top Secret, and my my pick, Ruthless People. And I picked this one because it's definitely the least well-known of their films. And uh, it's also the only one of their movies as a collective that is not a spoof film. Ruthless People is a comedy Sometimes a very broad comedy, but it's not a fourth wall breaking, you know, parody of a, of a, of a well known genre. Not a joke a minute kind of a thing. It's a much darker sort of film about these interweaving kidnap and blackmailing plots. Danny DeVito's character married his wife for her family's money, but before he could kill her, she is kidnapped. And then the kidnappers, played by Judd Reinhold and original Supergirl Helen Slater, tell him. You know, if we if you go to the cops, we'll kill your wife. And he thinks, fantastic. I'm going to tell the cops. They'll then you'll kill my wife. They'll do my job for me. And the wife, of course, is played. Do you know who the wife is played by? I do not have Bet, not seen this. Bette movie. Midler. Ooh. Oh, it is. It is a thing. Oh, it's great. Uh, meanwhile, DeVito's character has also a mistress, and the mistress has a boyfriend. They decide to blackmail Danny DeVito's character. They send him a videotape of what the boyfriend thinks is a murder. But it's actually a man having sex with a prostitute in his car. It's a very common mistake, actually. So they mean to threaten Danny DeVito's character, but he thinks his girlfriend is sending him porn to turn him on. And on and on it goes. There's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, these plot twists and miscommunications and confusions. All of the characters are very conniving and very stupid. It uh, it's overall it's you know it's not airplane. There's a reason it's not as well known as the Zucker's spoofs, but it's still really funny. And watching it always it makes me a little bit sad that this was the last movie they made as a as a true trio team uh, and a brother team as well. Um, it always feels to me like they 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 left a lot of uh, maybe not money, but they left a lot of hits on the table um, shortly after they made this. It uh, wasn't long before they went – they did Naked Gun, but also Jerry Zucker went off on his own and made Ghost, which was a huge hit. And that was sort of like the end of the trio. Um, and they started doing things much more separately or as two of them. That was kind of the end, although I don't think they really had a quote-unquote breakup or they – you know, there was it wasn't like a behind-the-music story where they they had a falling out or anything like that. Um, and what you see with Ruthless People is that they were more than just spoofers. Like they could do other things. Uh, the comedy in it is much darker, and the I think the other thing that I liked about it, 
and I think I like about all of their movies as a and as a directing team that it doesn't really get talked about or appreciated is how good they are at casting roles. They are incredible at always picking the perfect actor for the part to the point where sometimes just the casting is funny. The actor doesn't have to do anything. The casting does the work for them. All they have to do is show up, you know, uh, uh, like a like a, a Robert Stack in an airplane. He doesn't have to do anything except do him, be him. And that alone um, makes it funny. And here, Danny DeVito and Bette Midler are both incredible, giving these huge performances and Reinhold and Slater are perfect as these more innocent characters who are in way over their heads. And even a very young Bill Pullman is in this movie as well. He plays the dumb boyfriend. And he's great too. So if you are a Zuckers and Abrams fan, if you have seen Airplane, if you've seen Naked Gun, and you haven't seen Ruthless People and you're in the mood for a dark, raunchy comedy, or you just want a film directed by brothers and also their good friend – I recommend it. So that is Ruthless People. It is available right now for rent. All right. Well, for my pick, I wanted to go with a film from the Bolting Brothers. Do you know who they are? They're British filmmakers. Michael Bolton and his brother Bippy Bolton? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Familiar. No, the, the Bolting Brothers, uh, John and Roy Bolting. Uh, made a lot of films. Oh, Bolting. I'm Bolting. sorry. Yeah. Made a lot of films. I, I Maybe are supposedly best known for the comedies they made in the 50s and 60s, but I, however, have not seen them. So I cannot speak to those films. I wanted to talk about one that they made in the 40s that is not a comedy, but is in fact a pretty dark noir that is fantastic. It is Brighton Rock, which is available on Filmstruck or for rents. They made it in 1948. It's kind of a gangster film. Uh, it was directed by John Bolting, his brother Roy produced. They would often just kind of switch off who got the directing credit and they, they both worked on these films together. Um, but stars Richard Attenborough as, I think he was in his early twenties at the time, maybe 24, as this teenage psychopath who has just recently inherited control of a gang in Brighton. His name is Pinky Brown and Pinky is despite the adorable name is not an adorable character he is very dead inside and prone to acts of violence and this whole story uh, which is adapted from a graham green novel is it kind of uh it sidles up to pinky by way of another character who soon kind of dies at his hands and you start to realize that Pinky is this uh, just kind of like frightening, toxic force amongst everyone he knows, including this young girl he meets at a cafe who happens to have the misfortune of witnessing something he doesn't want to have known. She's played by Carol Marsh, and she becomes the person that you worry about throughout the rest of this movie, <laughs> just like deeply concerned about what's going to happen to her. Um, so this movie is set in Brighton, which is this kind of holiday town by the, by the sea. And one of the things that's uh, really interesting about it is that in order to kind of like make the people of, I guess like the town of the city of Brighton feel better for the fact that it is portrayed as this uh, extremely violent place and kind of seedy place. They wrote that now it starts off in the preface. Now it's like a sunny, happy place. This was between the two wars. It's not like this now. Um, but, uh, it is, as it's portrayed on screen, a really f- like, f- like in- not inviting. I would not say inviting, but it's a very memorable place where it's all kind of like bright 
cheap holiday stuff and then all of this violence and kind of disturbing uh, power plays lurking underneath. Uh, one of the best sequences, well, one of the most memorable sequences involves Pinky killing someone on a carnival ride uh, in which all of these kind of like scary things come flying at the camera and then uh, it's almost like uh, expressionist in the way it looks and then and then someone ends up uh, not well. But there's another sequence in which uh, one of the characters is performing on stage and there's a kind of sea of like rental chairs for people to sit out in the sun and she sees Pinky and uh, this girl that he's been wooing out in the crowd and has this like alarm on her face. This really bright sunny place has all kinds of horrors lurking there. Uh, and really like the best effect in the film is Attenborough's face because he's got this very kind of like beautiful young face, impassive face, and then these really just dead eyes. Um, and this movie was considered, I guess, at least in the UK, it was considered a scandal at the time. It was considered too violent, too dark, even though it went, it did away with the original. It tweaks the ending of the novel in a way that I think is pretty brilliant to offer the slightest bit of lightness to the way it ends. But it is just such a beautifully made noir, uh, one that just kind of leaves you off kilter the entire time. Uh, like the camera keeps like tilting up a bit and it closes in on faces in ways that are really kind of unsettling uh, because it's got a lot of great, great faces. Um, but it is a, a, a really, I think a kind of standout of a genre, especially in its willingness to basically follow a character just down on a downward alarming, accelerating downward spiral uh, and to kind of show a character who's really does not show any redeemable qualities, uh, including in one of this, uh, in, in one scene, um, just revealing these horrible truths while this innocent character stands outside, uh, unable to hear. So it's a great movie and I really recommend it. And it does make me want to dig into more of the Bolting Brothers catalog because uh, I've not seen much of it. Brighton Rock, it is on Filmstruck or available for rent. I haven't seen that one. It sounds great. So I'm glad that uh, that was your first pick. Now my second pick. And actually, as I'm thinking about it, it is also directed by a trio that includes the brothers and then someone else. So apparently without intending it, I prepared for an even more specific podcast. Wow about brother teams that also are credited alongside a third person. <laughs> yes. So in this case, I have something by the Maisel's brothers, Albert and David, and Charlotte Zwerin, who was their editor on several of their films, but who was sometimes credited as a co-director. They gave her co-directing credit to sort of acknowledge how important she was in the process. And the, the film I'm recommending, one of my favorite films, is Gimme Shelter from 1970, which is available right now on Filmstruck. And you may be able to watch it uh, on Canopy. It's listed there, but I don't think every library or academic institution that is affiliated with Canopy has access to it. So you have to sort of check through your account. So like when you sign up for Canopy, you have to do it through a local library or if you're a student through your school. So in my case, my local library that I'm signed up for Canopy for 
for whatever reason, I couldn't watch it there, but it might be worth checking before you look elsewhere, like for rent, or I guess if you have Filmstruck, you can watch it there too. The film is about the Rolling Stones tour of America in 1969 that culminated in their disastrous performance at the Altamont Speedway, which was meant to be the West Coast equivalent to Woodstock. That instead ended in a murder that was committed during the Rolling Stones concert and actually was captured on camera by the Maisels. So the film opens after the tour with the Rolling Stones, you know, looking very tired and haggard and sort of upset. And as they're coming into the editing room, the Maisels and Charlotte Zwerin's editing room to like look at footage of the movie with them. And so it's almost like a, a director's commentary or a, I guess a star's commentary before such a thing existed because throughout the film, we'll sometimes cut back to the editing room to see one of the Rolling Stones looking at the footage, commenting on themselves, commenting on what's going on, and providing some sort of context for what we're seeing. So you have live performances by the band, which are incredible. You have footage of them on tour, which is fascinating. And then you have this ending that is shocking and horrifying – and very interesting. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, I've seen this movie many times. And in this context, it's sort of interesting to talk about because Gimme Shelter is a movie about different perspectives. We see the Rolling Stones and then we see the Rolling Stones watching the Rolling Stones. And sometimes we hear the Maisels talking off camera to the Rolling Stones about what they're looking at, which is the Rolling Stones. And so by its very nature, um, this movie about different perspectives, it was made by multiple people who all by their existence have different perspectives. And I thought that was sort of an interesting way to look at this movie in this case. You know, I'm sure Albert and David Mazels were close. They were brothers. They worked together for years and years, um, but they had to see certain things differently. And so, you know, the movie, I think, almost wrestles with that notion uh, bringing up Rashomon again, you know, I was thinking about that, looking at some scenes from this movie uh, today and thinking about it, you know, that people don't – no two people experience the same event the same way. And so, you know, Albert Mazels may feel one way about Altamont. David Mazels may feel another way. Keith Richards might feel totally different. Mick Jagger might feel different. And then there is the footage of the actual event, of the concert, of the murder. And and the thing to sort of think about there is that the Mazels were these – you know, pioneers, these pillars of this movement in documentaries that was called direct cinema, which was all about, you know, supposedly a very objective style of documentary making, uh, very observational, sort of just handheld cameras following your subjects, letting their lives tell the stories. Not a lot of talking at interviews, not a lot of sort of, I don't know, opinionating or inserting yourself as a director or as a, you know, a, a, into the film. And letting the, the, the subject speak for themselves, trying to use the camera to convey something as directly as possible. So in, in that context, there's almost an additional third or maybe fourth or maybe fifth perspective because there's what the camera captures. And in 1969, when they were shooting this, you couldn't – there was no such thing as digitally altering something. So what you saw 
it, it happened. And so the camera is almost the clarifier that cuts through the different perspectives. You have what the Rolling Stones might think. You have what the Maisels might think. And then you have what they actually filmed. This is what happened. And you can think what, something happened. You can think something else happened. But here is what the camera witnessed. And so this is actually a very interesting movie to think about from this perspective in this sort of context as a movie made by multiple people, in this case, siblings and an extra person. <laughs> but um, and again, this is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. If you aren't necessarily uh, – uh, you don't have Canopy or Filmstruck or whatever, you know, you can get a Blu-ray or a DVD. It is a – it's a movie I, I return to a lot and there's lots of other interesting things that you could talk about that I didn't even touch upon. So – and great Rolling Stones music as well. So that is Gimme Shelter and uh, is available on Filmstruck and also it, – it, possibly if you have canopy if you're subscribed the right way to the right institution worth a look uh so my second pick is also a doc and i it's funny you know you're describing all of these different perspectives and the sense which is true for wild wild country as well that the truth is unless you're lucky enough to catch it directly on camera really difficult to know but uh, the documentary i'm, I'm going to talk about is one that gives you the illusion of being everywhere that is almost this kind of fascinating ease of it. It's 45365, and it's available for free on Vimeo. You can just search for it on Vimeo or follow the link on our site. It's a 2009 documentary from the Ross brothers, Bill Ross and Turner Ross, who are some of, I think, like the most exciting kind of like younger documentarians working today, really. They've made... They made three films in the mode of 45365, which was their first film. Uh, they went on to make Chapatulis, which takes place in New Orleans. Uh, you can find it on Vandor. And Western, which takes place in the neighboring border towns of Eagle Pass, Texas, and Piedras Negras, Mexico. And these are all kind of immersive studies in communities, ones in which... They try and make you forget the camera and that there are filmmakers there at all and kind of almost sell you on this impossible illusion of being everywhere at once, you know, of being omnipresent and giving you a really kind of uh, inclusive look at these various communities, even if that is, they're still authored by people, obviously, who have to be places. But I think it's most striking in 45365 Maybe because it's the territory they know the best. It's uh, 45365 is a zip code for Sydney, Ohio, the 20,000 person town they grew up in. And you can tell that they know this town like the back of their hands because this film, which is, is basically just a very affectionate look at the town over a year. Uh, and looking at various characters, some of which recur, some of some of whom you only see, some of whom are just like locations that you revisit, uh, and and to give you this sense of place, uh, you know, I hadn't seen this film for quite a while, so I was really glad to be able to go back and look at it because I think it's it, it the way in which it's put together is really remarkable. Like it's editing, and the way it uses something like the local radio station. And manages to cut from some, the DJ speaking into, speaking about something to, uh, someone on the ground at the county fair or someone getting ready for their wedding, listening to the music. Um, it really, uh, it seems like there's like a porousness that the camera is just able to move everywhere. I will say, um, 
you know, the, the the Bros brothers have described their three films in the genre as their Americana trilogy. And rewatching this film now, it was uh, my feelings were definitely a lot more complicated and bittersweet about this because I think, while I wouldn't say that four five three six five goes out of its way to romanticize the the Americana of this town, it absolutely presents Sydney, Ohio, as this quintessential middle America small town, you know, with county fairs and the football team and uh, high school dramas and, uh, you know, the barber shop where all of these, these different men kind of like come together to talk about various things. Uh, you know, town events, uh, he go, they go into people's homes. It really, it gives you this, it is filled with some kind of imagery that feels very, iconic uh you know very much especially the summer imagery it just feels like uh well not just the summer there's a shot of in which i think they just put the camera out the window of a car and kind of made their own dolly shot but like they they do a shot down a suburban street as as it's kind of like this it's sun is setting it's dusk and halloween and all of these kids are like running down the street and going from house to house and it just feels so richly even if you didn't grow up in a place like that, it feels like this almost pang of, uh, of recognition. And I, I, I feel a lot more bittersweet about that now, just because in some ways that very idea of Americana, an idea of this like small town community life has gotten so divisive. It's become such a kind of leveraging tool politically, you know, um, uh, that that the idea of it as kind of this inclusive community as it's presented and it is like really strikingly presented as that one of the threads is the ways in which the the police uh treats when they have to arrest people people they know and the matter of factness and the between them as they like arrest someone who has was out of jail and was doing okay for a while and is now not doing okay is uh you know they're doing their job and everyone understands this has to be done but it's very kind of like even keeled and and understanding i think to watch this now given our particular political discourse and the ways in which uh the country feels especially divided uh and fractured at the moment i think it doesn't feel quite as welcoming a film i think it feels like a beautiful film but it does feel, I think you're kind of aware of the fact that the nostalgia that it offers up is not necessarily a shared or universal one. I mean, it looks nothing like the place I grew up, um, but I, you know, which certainly doesn't stop me from loving it and relating to it. But I think you kind of feel that gap a little more. Um, and I think it, it speaks to the films that they went on to make as well. Chapatulis set in New Orleans is set in like a very different kind of place. And Western is a really interesting counterpart in that it's about these two border towns that as, as, as the kind of political situation changes, go from places that were essentially with the same city with the border in between, uh, to as cartel violence escalates and kind of like talk about the border escalates to being very kind of divided. So uh, I, I think that actually I would recommend if you want to watch all three together, they would make for a very uh, 
kind of provocative trilogy. Uh, I wish I had time to go through and watch the other two, rewatch the other two after this. But I do still love this first one. It was one of my favorite films of 2009. It's gorgeous. If uh, a little more, I don't know, uh, if, I, if something I feel a little more complicated about, just the experience of watching it, uh, going back and rewatching it now. It's 45365 and it is on Vimeo. Great movie. All right, I've been slacking off. So Allison is going to walk us through some, briefly, some some movies that are new in theaters. She's got uh, three films that came out uh, this week, or coming out this week, I guess, or just newly out in theaters. The first, Blockers. This is a sports comedy, I believe, about uh, the blocking uh, blockers on a football team. It is not that. It's about a running back. That sounds great. Played by John Cena. He's I mean, a running back. He'll be a convincing running back. And, and then say, Leslie Mann and Ike Barinholtz play his blockers. Yes. On the football team. You know, I haven't seen it. John Cena is very rectangular. I think he could very much. Play he could play a, a blocker. A, yeah, he could a football but, blocker. But of course, this movie directed by Kay Cannon is one about three parents. Oh, trying played by the on actors the football you mentioned. Team. Trying to block their teenage daughters oh. from their from pact running. to oh. lose their virginity oh. on prom night. Oh, I'm actually, I would love, I'm sad that you haven't seen this because I would love to hear what you think of because it. Because I have two young daughters? No, because you're nightmare. a big fan. Yes, but no, because you're a big fan of American Pie. Well, sure. I mean, I was when I was a when I was a teenager. I haven't seen it in a while. Sure, but you have talked about it on a podcast we've done before, okay. at least a while ago. I mean, um, and I think that like years. this movie tries to engage with the idea of what it'd be like to do an American Pie that's female centric, right? And then all of the kind of baggage that comes with it, which the movie really is very active in confronting. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think sometimes it's a bit better as. In that, in kind of engaging those ideas, and I would say it is as a comedy that right. would just have some funny parts. Uh, and it does, I think, I enjoy John Cena's budding comedy career, mm. unexpected. Uh, but it's got uh, a great trio of teens Catherine Newton, Geraldine uh, Viswanathan, and Gideon Adlon, who is Pamela Adlon's daughter. Um, and I. There's a slight awkwardness in splitting between like the parents and the kids so much, but a lot of the stuff about like dealing with what it means for your daughter to have sex and like why that's so much different from your son and like why all of the fears that come along with that. Right. And also dealing with what it means that if you've raised kids who are really smart about it and if all of these boys around them have been like raised to be really respectful and like uh, understand ideas of consent. And if a lot of so much of these fears that like everyone has had attached to uh, what can happen have been stripped away. What if you still have this vague alarm left over anyway? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is which when one of the parents is confronted by the one of the teens who asks like, is what is so bad about sex? And the parent is like, I don't know. I don't know. I I cannot tell you why I'm so alarmed about the prospect of you having sex, you know? And I I think that that there's something about that vague panic that is almost like kind of undefined that really, uh, you know, kind of powers this movie. Uh, I think it's a nice movie. It's very sweet, um, you know, and it's, it is a progressive R rated movie in which John Cena butt chugs beer. How about that? I mean, I would prefer it if he was playing a guy on a football team, but I'll take it. All right, let's move on to the second film. 
A Quiet Place. Yeah, this is really a big week for parental anxiety movies in different forms. Now you know why I'm not watching them. I've got enough parental anxiety already. I don't need John Krasinski telling me why I should be afraid. Yeah, this is also, I would say, like an enjoyable movie. Like Mm -hmm. Blockers, I wouldn't say it's like a total home run by any means, Mm -hmm. but it is a very, like, maybe surprisingly enjoyable studio movie. You know, John Krasinski has, like, reinvented himself as this brawny, facial hair-having action hero. And he directs this movie. It's his third that he's directed. And I would say easily his best. Uh, uh, You know, and it just has that very kind of clever high concept, which is that these monsters that have rendered the world this post-apocalyptic landscape Mm -hmm. have extremely sensitive hearing. So everyone has to be extremely quiet. Right. Uh, but then you've also, you know, you've got uh, a character who is deaf, played by Millicent Simmons from Wonderstruck, uh, deaf actress. And that allows both a way to explain why all of the family knows ASL, but also a way to kind of have a character who has, in some ways, like an extra level of vulnerability in that hearing these monsters coming is like one of the ways the characters know that they're arriving. Right. But also who becomes, it becomes like a strength. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that this movie really delivers any deep thoughts about parental anxiety. I think it is mostly just like a fun, shrieky comedy. You know, one of those ones that really doesn't just rely on jump scares, but does a lot with being like, oh, something scary is in the room with you. Hmm. And the creature design is pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's hard to make an original looking creature. And I don't know that this creature looks totally original, but it looks very memorable and and spooky. There are some nice set pieces. And I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I, I think that Krasinski really has an eye for how to frame uh, how to like frame scary things kind of like coming up in the background. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah, so solid. All right. Well, so far so good. Uh last but not least, you were never really here. Now this one, this one I like. This one I like a lot. Okay. You know, I think those other two they're, they're like decent films, but this one from Lynn Ramsey I just loved. In some ways, it felt like the movie I wanted from Drive. And there's okay. a lot there's some parallels to its storyline. But uh but it's it's like in all of the ways in which Drive felt to me like a little puffed up and self-aggrandizing and self-romanticizing, this movie has none of that. It's just so bruising and brutal and just weird uh, and, and just violent. Like its violence is so intense and unflinching. And it's, you know, Joaquin Phoenix as this uh, this kind of like combat vet, you know, he's a combat vet who's kind of become this hired guy who who retrieves missing girls or trafficked girls but really it's just this like venture into extremely dark places and it's really sustained by Joaquin who is he's like really meaty and he's so clearly kind of like traumatized and he's so scary uh, and and it's just like a very good role for him especially as a character who just doesn't talk much and just projects all of this morass of feelings uh you know through and this like this intense desire for like uh a way out or a way to save himself and a way to kind of like anything to grasp onto in a life that has barely any light to it at all uh yeah i enjoyed it immensely i saw it back at sundance and like left feeling a little kind of like you know, the way you feel when you're a little uh, shaky after having watched something that's very, like, adrenaline-y and, 
and kind of a rush. So uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Lynn Ramsey, Lynn Ramsey in general. I think she's like an extremely talented filmmaker. Morvern Collar, I think, is a tremendous movie. And this one is, I think I'm very glad she made it. I'm also, I feel like it feels in some ways a little calling card-y, if that makes sense. Yes. It feels like it is a movie that, you know, you watch it and you, you want someone to give her a hundred million dollars to make uh, something with immense scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that if out of the three, that's if the you one have the to option, see. That's the one I would say to see. All right. Good to know. All right, let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball. We're going to wrap things up on the show with our three new releases, two listener recommendations you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, uh, do you want me to go first? Yeah. You just, you just talked about all those new movies Why that I didn't bother to see. All right, I'm ready. Okay, three new releases. Okay, first up, new on Filmstruck is the 25-year-old, yes, 25-year-old Reservoir Dogs. Quentin Tarantino's debut feature about a group of jewel thieves who botch a robbery and then turn on each other. I rewatched the film last fall when it turned 25 years old. Technically, it's almost 26 years old now, Allison. I know. It's awful. And, um, yeah, it's it's hard to acknowledge the uh, passage of time, but I thought the film holds up uh, pretty well for a debut feature. And um, what I found interesting looking at it again recently was, in addition to everything else going on in there, um, you can kind of read the whole movie as a as an allegory for movie making. And um, I actually made a video essay about that. So if you're curious about that, you can find that on Screen Crush's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Screen Crush, or just search on YouTube for Reservoir Dogs video essays. There's not a lot of them. Um, or you can watch Reservoir Dogs on Filmstruck. Next up is, I think, the last really good Adam Sandler comedy, pure broad comedy, not something he made with a good filmmaker like a Noah Baumbach or whatever. And uh, that is, do you want to guess what I'm going to say, Allison? The last really good Adam Sandler like comedy, like straight ahead. I feel like I'll reveal too much if I say <laughs> oh. what it is. Okay, fine. Well, it is You Don't Mess with the Zohan, okay. which is about Adam Sandler playing this elite Israeli secret agent who follows his dream and moves to the United States to become a hairstylist. It is very silly. It is also kind of sweet and has some good jokes. And, you know, it's funny. I saw this movie when it came out. I've laughed a bunch. I think I've seen it once since then. Laughed again. and uh, But I haven't seen it in a long time. It's now, I guess, uh, probably a decade old. And I was looking on Wikipedia at the credits. And the movie was written by Adam Sandler, Robert Smigel, and Judd Apatow. So it, it's probably going to be a little funny when those are the three people who wrote it. Uh, that is, you don't mess with the Zohan, which is now available on Hulu. Finally, while I did watch all of Wild Wild Country, if it was up to me this week, I would be watching another Netflix series, which I have started, called Nailed It. Have you seen Nailed It, Allison? I have not. Have you heard of Nailed It? I have heard a little bit. Okay. Nailed It is kind of like what would happen if... The Zucker brothers, who we've mentioned on this show, tried to like make a spoof of the great British baking show. So it is, but it's not fiction. It's a legitimate competition reality series, but instead of world class or at least, you know, extremely proficient amateur bakers competing to prove that they're the best, it is about three mediocre to terrible bakers who are given these very difficult challenges and have to try their best to approximate, you know, 
a wedding cake or Ooh. whatever it is. And then at the end of the challenge, they put up a, 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 a split screen of what they were supposed <laughs> to make and what they did make. And the contestant has to say, nailed it. And every single time you see what they made next to what they were supposed to make, I laugh and I laugh. There's, to me, it is like the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Just like their garbage attempt to make, you know, donuts or whatever it is. Wow. Next to, it's hilarious. It is a really funny show. It is. It's like the best Netflix show. It is so great. It's so stupid. It's such a perfect premise. I'm in awe of it. It's only six episodes. It's only half hours. So it's perfect for me too. Yeah. Because it's, it's short. So uh, yes, high recommendation, especially if you like, and I love the Great British Baking Show. I, I love that stuff. I love I love uh, those kind of cooking competition shows. So if you watch a lot of that, it's a lot of fun. It is Nailed It on uh, on Netflix. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. All right. Our first comes from Madeline. Madeline writes, hey, Matt and Allison, I wanted to suggest one of my favorite movies uh, on your show, and that is Blue Velvet, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. I recommend this to anyone who likes David Lynch or Twin Peaks, even if it's not for everyone. It, it, even though it has a really weird, twisted story, it is a great human center in its characters. It's probably my favorite Kyle MacLachlan performance, and Laura Dern is so impressive considering she was only 19 when she made it. I also love the soundtrack and the score. Uh, so that is a recommendation for Blue Velvet on Amazon Prime. Can't really go wrong with Blue Velvet. Who doesn't love Blue Velvet except Roger Ebert? He hated that movie. Yeah. Nobody's can't, perfect. Can't always have perfect. Nobody's taste. perfect. Uh, so thank you for that recommendation, Madeline. And our next recommendation is from Andy in South Dakota. Andy recommends the Ukrainian film The Tribe. The plot is mildly intriguing. A young man attends a private school and get mixed in with an underground crime syndicate involving drugs and prostitution going on within the school. As fascinating as that premise is, what truly sets the film apart is that it is told with zero dialogue. There aren't even subtitles, if I'm remembering correctly. Instead, the entire film is told through sign language, Ukrainian sign language. The audience has to rely on visual context to follow the story. It's a thrilling watch and one of my favorite discoveries of last year, despite coming out in 2014. The Tribe is streaming on Netflix, but it also has a pretty great Blu-ray release for those who still collect physical media so that's the tribe on netflix and that recommendation came from andy in south dakota thank you andy all right and give me one chosen blindly by number from your my list you gave me number 12 it's a film i have not seen i believe you have seen it and i think you've been written about it recently you might have feelings about it it is called the outsider yes i did write about this recently <laughs> it is uh the new jared leto jam <laughs> He plays an American soldier imprisoned in post-war Japan. He enters the dark world of the Yakuza, adopting their way of life in repayment for his freedom. Isn't that the way? And uh, Allison, you love this movie, right? 10 out of 10 would recommend. I feel like it's mostly, if you're going to watch it, you should watch it just for the fact that it follows beats that will be very familiar, that you can guess ahead of time. Okay. Uh, but that... that Movies like this are still getting made, in which they are kind of those fantasies in which, you know, an outsider who is inevitably like a white man drops into these communities, uh, becomes part of these communities, and then becomes better at, you know, a better cultural representation right. of them, an embodiment of honor or whatever, than yes. anyone who was born into I it. I see no problem with what you're describing. Yeah. And also then usually... 
usually also hooks up with whoever the equivalent of like the princesses. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Which happens in this movie as well. No, get out. It absolutely does. Hold on, I'm bumping it up to number one on my mind. Also, right the now. ending may involve a uh, samurai sword. No. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to we're going to keep the show rolling. I'm going to watch the movie right now and we're going to listen to me watch it for the next how long is it? 90 minutes, I'm guessing. Uh, I think it's maybe closer to 2 hours. That's fine. I've got nothing but time. Here we go. I'm starting it in 3, 2, 1. Okay. Um okay, so I've got it at number 1 on my my list now. You Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah. Sounds really good. Yeah. Okay. Allison, it's your turn. Are you ready to give us your uh, picks here? I am. Let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. New to Amazon are two of the most talked about movies from A24 of last year. The Outsider? Is that one of them? No. Oh. But I appreciate your you're keeping it going. Uh, the first is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yorgos Lanthimos's sort of like a, it's like a horror film by way of a dark comedy or maybe a dark comedy by way of a horror film. But either way, it stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and Barry, I don't know how to say his last name. I'm going to go with Kyogen, but that's probably wrong. I'm sorry, Barry. Uh, and a host of others in this, ex- in this story about uh, a surgeon who befriends this boy who has a connection to, to his work, only to have this kind of like dark mythical thing come around uh this like price that must be paid Mm -hmm. but also it's a lanthimos film so it's extremely deadpan and extremely strange not my favorite of his honestly mine either uh but i it is it does still give you a taste of his film universes which are very distinctive uh even if i don't think this one particularly pulls together but it is now on amazon the killing of a sacred deer also there, my favorite film from 2017, The Florida Projects. Uh, this is Sean Baker's l- most recent and most successful film to date, uh, starring Brooklyn Prince, one of the cutest child actors of recent years, and Bria Vinata as her mother. As And then it'd be, it's set in this motel that's mostly filled with people who are unable to afford more permanent housing and is both an extremely sweet and convincing movie about childhood and an extremely depressing one about living just barely off of uh outside of homelessness and it's fantastic it's so good it Mm -hmm. has the ending matt are you pro ending or con ending very pro ending some people are not into it i will say i think the ending is like magnificent the ending is great yeah so that is also on amazon and finally, something I have not seen yet, but have marked because I've been very curious about it. You know, Netflix buys a lot of international programming. We rarely mention it just because there's so much of it and we don't know a lot about it. Right. But uh, Netflix is premiering its first Philippine series, Filipino series. And it is from a actually like very well-known director on the international festival circuit, Brillante Mendoza, who made movies like directed Kinete and and service and Ma Rosa. If you've seen any of those, you'll know that he's a real feel good guy. <laughs> um, but, and this, this oh, one yeah. is a, it's, it's about uh, a high school student who starts kind of doing small time, uh, drug peddling and kind of moves up in the world. And, you know, if, if you've been following the kind of uh, situation in the Philippines in terms of the kind of really harsh uh, kind of legal treatment, or if you want to even call it legal treatment, uh, killing of a lot of drug dealers and suspected drug dealers in the mm-hmm. Philippines, uh, this is, I think, a particularly timely 
subject matter. It's called Amo, A-M-O, and that is streaming on Netflix. And I'm very curious about it uh, because it's just one of those things that kind of got slipped in there. And you're like, oh, this this filmmaker is making his first series. And there it is on streaming. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, I have one from Alex in Moreno Valley, California, who writes, I'd like to recommend Free Indeed streaming on Amazon Prime. Set in the world of strip mall churches, the film follows a man who is trying to leave his past behind him and a mother who is struggling to raise her two children, one of whom has special needs. Having been neglected by society at large, they find some kind of solace in the only place that offers them some form of hope. Not the most uplifting of movies, but worth a watch. Thank you for that, Alex. That's actually been on my list for a while. I've heard really good things about it. Mm -hmm. So free indeed on Amazon. And next up, we have one from Kyan in Auckland, New Zealand, who writes, Recently came across a show on Netflix that I've literally heard nothing about, but it's inexplicably great. On the outside, The Magicians looks like every other copy-and-pasted sci-fi channel genre fast food show. The effects are often cute, if they were from a decade ago. The cast have that generic no-name pretty people uh, look that gives you the feeling they might not be. this might not be very good, and the concept on paper sounds like a tired grab bag of fantasy tropes jumbled together. And all of these observations are accurate, but the show is somehow one of the most clever, fresh comfort food shows I've seen in quite a while, and I don't know how it happens. The show is basically, imagine if Harry Potter and Narnia were real, but immoral adults were the ones actually using magic in terrible ways people logically would. The main character, Quentin, is a manic depressive in an institution, told that he actually belongs in a magician's university called Breakbells. He goes off his meds and goes into this magical realm where he and his film start discovering, uh, uncovering a dark mystery. Storylines take magic to really interesting logical conclusions of how they would be used as rave stimulants, drug addiction, mental health and body modification, sexual assault and sexual liberated orgies. Storytelling is regularly surprising. The comedy is understated and nuanced. Uh, it is not high art. It definitely has flaws, but I'd be lying if I didn't say it's the most I've enjoyed a show in a long time. So that is The Magicians, which is on Netflix. Uh, I've watched some of The Magicians, which I enjoyed it. I loved the books that they were based on. No, I know on. you're a big fan of the yes. books. Uh, the books are maybe a bit darker than I think I would say the series is, if that's possible. But I adored them. So if you are a fan of The Magicians on the screen, I would recommend the books. All right. And how about one film chosen finally by a number from your list? You gave me number three. Uh, number three is First Match. One of the many Netflix original films that Netflix just flings out into the ether and that may not go ever commented on. <laughs> so this one actually came off of winning the Audience Award at South by Southwest last month. Uh, it's Olivia Newman's feature debut. It was a short that she expanded into this feature. It's about a teenage girl who spent years in foster care. It's from Brownsville in Brooklyn. Uh, and joins the boys wrestling team. And in through doing that kind of figures out a way to find common ground with her estranged father, who I think was uh, in jail. It sounds very uh, girl fight-ish. Mm. Like the trailer looked very girl fight-ish, though mm. I think that it's more about like the father and daughter maybe finding common ground. But I've heard good things. It looks promising. I don't know if I'll ever have time to get around to it, but it's on my my list at number three, first match. Okay. All right. Let's talk about our listeners' choice options for our next episode. An interesting batch. I have the first option here. It is a little film called The Iron Giant. It is from 1999. 
It is directed by Brad Bird. I believe it is his feature directorial debut, in fact. And that is currently streaming on Netflix. The film, set during the Cold War in 1957, it's about a young boy named Hogarth. He discovers a giant metallic robot who fell from space. With the help of a beatnik artist, they attempt to prevent the U.S. military. And Kent Mansley, a paranoid federal agent, from finding and destroying the Iron Giant. And uh, the movie is, uh, it's back in the news for a few reasons, I guess. One being Brad Bird has a new movie coming out, a new animated movie, his first animated movie in quite a while, The Incredibles 2. That doesn't come out for about two months. But the other reason is that The Iron Giant is very heavily featured in Ready Player One. It is, uh, it's in a lot of the marketing, on the posters and the trailers, kind of a featured, um, it's like the front and center pop culture reference that kind of stands in for the style of the movie where there's all these Easter eggs and, and, and callbacks. And I guess probably because Warner Brothers released that movie and, and uh, they own the Iron Giant, so he's easy to control the rights to. Yeah, I think he was even replacing another, maybe another character. I'm I, not entirely sure. I'm not sure yeah. either because I have not read the book, but it wouldn't surprise me. So, uh, and some people have argued that the depiction of the Iron Giant in Ready Player One is... Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not canonical or not. It's it's more that it's like against the spirit of yes. a character who is very pacifistic, right? And in the in the uh, I don't want to spoil Ready Player One for you, but he has like death lasers that shoot yes. out of him. <laughs> and so, for a character to go from being like a pacifist to shooting death lasers, I can see the conflict there. Sure, but it also fits into the kind of like gleeful authorial intent has no meaning absolutely no i'm not right i yes. i wasn't one of the people who was particularly upset about this no, it but it's a, fair, like, it's a fair observation yes. i would say and i feel like it's an unavoidable to the point where it almost seems deliberate in this weird you know to be like oh this character from a whole movie about how war is bad <laughs> is going to be participate in the giant battle with death lasers. Yes. So uh, I would be. I think it'd be interesting to uh, look back at, at at that film. We could we could do a show on Brad Bird, or we could do a show about. I don't know. It might be interesting to do a show about like American animated movies that aren't by Disney because mm, that's yeah. sort of an interesting um, subject. There's plenty of them, but it's also something that's not talked about too much. So uh, that's option number one: The Iron Giant on Netflix. Option number two is a, a movie, another another one that is a earlier movie from someone who is currently being talked about a lot. Uh, that person is Donald Glover, whose Atlanta is on a second season, and who also recently taunted FX, I guess, with a, a script for the Deadpool animated series that he uh, that he was trying to make that didn't get made. I don't know. It was a very complicated... It was odd. Yes. I thought it was a little odd. Yes. Brand warfare or whatever is going on. But anyway, uh, it was funny to read a recent profile uh, of Donald Glover that was in The New Yorker and have it kind of present like he, he sprang full force uh, you know, onto the scene by himself. Right. But of course he didn't. He mm -hmm. was part of this NYU scene. Uh, including Derek Comedy, which was this comedy team he was a part of. Right. And they made a movie. Mm -hmm. They made a movie called Mystery Team, yes. which is streaming on Amazon, uh, which stars Glover, DC Pearson, and Dominic Dierks uh, as best friends from childhood who have been solving neighborhood crimes mm -hmm. and then get hired to find uh, a killer 
and of course are all little man children who <laughs> are maybe not the best choices no? for a serious crime. No. But you know, uh, this was a movie that I think was fairly well received at the time, and Very now well and yeah. now you know becomes this really interesting artifact, not just in Glover's career, but like in a lot of other talented comedy people's career. Right. So I think uh, it'd be great to kind of even like talk about this movie in contrast to the very strong voice in comedy that Glover has developed since. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, I don't know. I mean, we could take a look at some of the careers of people uh, around this time. We could Uh, also do comedy troops, comedy troops. Cause I think super troopers two is also coming out this month. That's right. (laughs) Who could forget? It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those like long sequels. I mean, that I'm I, kind of surprised you didn't mention it. You have several Super Troopers tattoos, Allison. So I'm really surprised. I don't like to talk about <laughs> sorry. that. It's a very private. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> but nonetheless, you're you're a big fan. Cute. So I would have thought you would you would have mentioned it. Also but, like yeah, the but... Slammin' Salmon. It's <laughs> a great. I've seen trip. I've seen that movie. I do. <laughs> It was a masterpiece. <laughs> yes. um, so yeah, th- that's another option. Would be like you know comedy troops I think movies. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's our so third option? Our third option is uh, Night of the Comet from 1984, which is now streaming on Tubi. Uh, it stars Catherine Mary Stewart, Robert Beltran, Kelly Maroney, survivors of a comet that has turned most people into either dust or zombies. And Allison, you spotted this one and you were the one who suggested it as an option. What was it about this one that you particularly thought was interesting? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's from the eighties. It's like a horror movie that has sort of over the years become a bit of a cult favorite. Right. And I, I, it's just one that I had heard mentioned kind of with reverential tones, you know, by Mm -hmm. people, both as like something that has a great, horror comedy tone but also is very female led ah and that also served as a possible inspiration for buffy the vampire slayer yes i i've read that as well yeah okay. so there's a lot of good reasons and we could do um we could do female led horror movies although there's, i mean there's a lot of them so sure that we would could be do, fun we could do post well disaster post disaster or um i'm not sure if we've done cult horror before seems like we might have we've done 160 of these there's a lot of them there are a lot of them and also we've come up with never come up with a good system in which we actually keep track so no. this is why, why around this why time we? around this time we're always like have we done that i don't know yeah yeah okay so that is option number 3 night of the comet which is streaming on Tubi, which, you know, that's a, that's a website. You don't need a, a, you know, it's free. You don't have to subscribe or pay a, a membership fee. Right. There are just ads. There's supported. ads in there, ad supported. So, yeah. So anyone could watch it on there. All right. That's the third option. Okay. It's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming options uh, we should review on the next episode by voting in the poll that is at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. We'll also post links to the poll on our social media feeds. We're at Facebook and Twitter at filmspottingsvu. And then you've got until Monday, April 16th at noon to vote. That's when we'll announce the winner. Giving you a week if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, April 24th. In addition, being able to vote at filmspottingsvu.com. That's also where you can find our episode archive, complete with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mentioned on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you've picked. Until then, you can always find us on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you should definitely also follow the show, at Film Spotting SVU. 
where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new on streaming that you might want to know about. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. 